0: hello and welcome to this week's episode of goals on film edge of the crowd's dedicated sports movies podcast i'm your host jason and i've got stewie and paul joining me for this episode paul we'll start with you making your goals on film debut how are you doing good man i
1: love the duran duran reference in the title of the show um, i couldn't think of a better movie to do for my debut than field of dreams
0: and stewie how are you doing
1: Great, right,
2: mate. Can't wait to get into it. Uh, Field of Dreams, one of my favourite movies of all time. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll discuss that somewhat during the uh, duration of this podcast.
1: Yeah, And absolutely. great to be
2: doing it with my uh, After Extra Time buddy, Paul. How you doing over there, Paul?
1: <laughs> Good, man. This is like, um, you know, when the Jetsons meet the Flintstones, the cartoon crossover <laughs> we're doing After Extra Time meets um, goals on film. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm glad to have you both here And we'll get into it And actually, Stewie, do you perhaps want to lead us into this episode? Tell us what we're discussing today
2: Absolutely, so of course we're talking about Field of Dreams 2 The deadening Um, Ray builds a a baseball diamond um, After hearing a voice um, And uh, him and Annie and the little kid I can't remember what her name is uh, uh, Become under attack from from, uh, baseball zombies and uh, even the zombie of Terence Mann comes back. Um, it's a terrifying flick. Don't take your kids. Um, but uh, obviously, it's brilliant. That's why we're talking about it today.
0: <laughs> well, I do still love that idea, Stewie, and I have <laughs> no doubt that movie will be made. Um, but we'll look at the original movie in this instance, if it's okay.
2: Fine. <laughs> Fine. All right. Uh, If
0: you insist, I think it's a good reminder again to go back and listen to our previous episodes. That one, you had that idea on the Moneyball episode, I think. So, baseball. So, if you're listening to this episode, we've done a few baseball films now. So, go back and give them a listen, as well as all the others in the Goals on Film library. Absolutely. This week, though, we are looking at 1989 baseball drama, Field of Dreams. The film tells the story of Iowa farmer Ray Kinsella, who, after tending to his corn crop, hears a voice telling him, if you build it, he will come. After seeing a vision, which includes a baseball field and shoeless Joe Jackson, thinking that he needs to build it to ease the pain of him and the other seven members of the 1919 Black Sox, the White Sox team who were suspended for throwing the World Series that year. The voices take Ray on a ride to see author Terence Mann, believing his part of all of this after learning he wrote a character in one of his books after Ray's father, um, and had once professed to playing with the Brooklyn Dodgers or wanting to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. They drive to Minnesota after learning about Archibald Moonlight Graham, and Ray finds himself in 1972 and talks to Archie about his baseball career. Um, after learning all about this, on the way back home, the two pick up a hitchhiker, um, young Archie Graham, um, who joins the team, who joins the, uh, the eight members of that 1919 White Sox team on the field that Ray uh, has curated and built, um, and basically gets his chance of playing in a baseball game. Um, all of this happens when uh, Ray is sort of under financial hardship as well, and uh, sort of prompted to sell the farm uh, based on this. But in the end, uh, the person that is giving him the hardest time about selling the farm, um, he can now see these baseball players and prompts Ray to not sell the farm anymore, thinking that there is value in all of this. Um, as we learn that people will come, people will come to see this baseball field and to see these players. Um, effectively come back to life and play a game on uh, Ray's farm uh, at the field so throughout all of that uh, throughout the movie itself what did you guys think of it uh, yeah did what did you like about it if there was anything that you didn't like about it what was that but I think that we've uh, determined that we all like this film and it's a pretty good movie oh place Give us your thoughts, mate. That's why we got you here. You're the
2: expert in the White Sox jersey.
1: Yes, uh, the listeners can't see, but I am rocking a Chicago White Sox Field of Dreams game jersey. It was given away as a promotion last year. It was during their uh, first homestand after the first ever Field of Dreams game. So it's a replica, but it's the same thing. Um, I myself find the Black Sox scandal to be maybe the most interesting thing that's ever happened in the history of baseball. I find it to be definitely one of the most interesting things to happen in the history of sports. Um I actually like the book Eight Men Out and the movie Eight Men Out better because that focuses on Shoeless Joe Jackson, focuses on the Black Sox. And I I like that better than Field of Dreams. But I mean, that's a different animal. I mean I, I like Field of Dreams. as a. I feel it is a baseball movie, but at the same time, it's really a family drama, like a family strife kind of movie. I think you could actually make an argument either way. It kind of reminds me of another Kevin Costner baseball movie, Bull Durham. You could say Bull Durham is a baseball movie. You could say it's a romantic comedy. It's kind of both. It's not you know, it, it's a rom-com. It's a baseball movie. This is, um, I like Field of Dreams. Um, and I'm trying to remember Field of Dreams as just the movie that I saw in the late 80s and remembering when I got to go there in the year 2000 and remembering it for that. Because unfortunately, I not of anything that's wrong with the movie. It's not the movie's fault, but it's kind of ruined for me now. It, it's definitely ruined in that um, they just over promoted it. They built the game there. I thought it was really cheesy and annoying the way they presented the baseball game last year. Um, again, that doesn't take away from the film. It's just what, what major league baseball has done. What Kevin Costner himself has done, you know, the way he took like forever to walk out into the field through the corn, the way his interview lasted forever during the game. It, it's, you know, I try to separate all of that, and um, I, I think it's like a B plus, A minus kind of. I'm
2: gonna be honest, man. Uh, I'm glad that uh, until I met Jason here, I wasn't aware of uh, of the field of dreams game because I, I I think I understand what you're saying. It kind of takes away from. From that movie that you went and seen in the late '80s, and you know, going to going to the field and stuff in, in 2000, I could see how that would kind of take away from it. For me, um, you know, I don't have any of that baggage, and, and, I'm, I, and I'm happy that I don't. It's a it's a fantastic movie. Um, so much to like about it. Prime Kevin Costner. Um, I think the, the Annie, the the wife. <laughs> She's got to win the award as potential best wife of of all time to let uh, Ray get away with all this nonsense during the film. Um, <laughs> oh my
1: god! Yeah, <laughs> that's the most far fetched part of the film. It's not. It's not ghosts <laughs> coming back to life. It's- <laughs> <laughs> and um,
2: you know, I'm a sucker for James L. Jones, um, and. You know, he softens a little bit throughout the movie, but uh, Angry Terrence Mann at the start of the movie is, uh, is fantastic. Uh, I like it when, when Ray's pretending to have a gun <laughs> and, uh, and the Terrence Mann character <laughs> just picks up this baseball bat and says, well, I'm going <laughs> to smash your head in with this baseball bat, so you're going to have to shoot me to stop <laughs> me. No. You really pissed me okay, off. Just hold it right there. I was hoping I wasn't gonna have to do it this way. What the hell is that? It's a gun, what do you think it is? It's your finger. No, it's not, it's a gun. Yeah, let me see it. Get out of here, I'm not gonna show you my gun. Now look, I'm not gonna hurt you, I just need you to come with me for a little while. And what are you, what are you doing? I'm gonna beat you with a crowbar and then you go away. (laughs) Oh, fantastic, so much I love this movie and uh, you know, um, yeah, it's just great. One of the first movies to uh, ever, you know get a get a tear out of this cold black heart of mine was, uh, nah. was Field of dreams. Uh, yeah <laughs> No,
0: nah, I think that this movie is just like such a mesmerizing film. um and like the way the reason why I like it so much is that like it doesn't entirely need dialogue in certain parts to like make you feel something. Um, and make you feel, like, you know, connected to the movie about, like, what's happening. And so, like, I think of that, like, scene where Ray first sees Shoeless Joe on the field and goes out there and, you know, they're, you know, playing catch or playing uh, ball with each other. Like, there's almost no dialogue in the first, you know, couple of minutes of that particular scene. Um, And I think it just works. Like, it brings it, like, back down to earth um and like yeah in that moment you just like see two people playing ball with each other and I think that yeah I think that this is a movie that like I appreciate a lot like it's just such a feel-good movie um you know obviously everything sort of comes like full circle at the end and there's like pieces of it that like even you as a viewer need to sort of like piece together you know, like, you need to work out, like, how it's all connected, like, in the first instance, like, you know, as, you know, you sort of see Ray say, like, you know, what do I need to build? Who do I need to build it for? Whose pain do I need to ease? And so, like, while Ray's asking that those questions of himself, like, I feel like you as a viewer, like, are also asking those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, you know, it sort of, like, tripped me out a little bit when you first, when, like, I first watched it. Um, you know the the sort of uh, understanding that like Ray went back to 1972 to talk to Archie Graham I was like you know it, it like yeah it forced me to like properly like sort of like clue in try to clue in to like what was happening a lot of the time but um, you know once it all sort of came together um, and you sort of pieced it together I think that like yeah you can sort of appreciate it a lot more um and yeah like I said it was just a feel-good movie I think it's like one of like the best movies out there at least like one of the best baseball movies out there um and yeah as you said Stewie like I feel like it does also sometimes bring a tear to your eye um just in terms of how everything comes together and uh is connected and then obviously we had the scene at the end which um you know is yeah really sort of brings uh two characters together and brings like all the themes together as well so before
2: we move away from that last scene right uh with the old man right hey dad do you want to have a catch right it's a yep. beautiful scene love it that's the scene i was talking about really is emotional scene maybe maybe cry a little bit okay i'm not i'm not ashamed to admit it hey
0: dad
1: You want to have a catch?
2: I'd like that. But <laughs> I do have a problem with this. Okay. So <laughs> these guys are coming out to the cornfield, right? They're playing baseball every day or often. I don't know if it's every day. Like, not once did Ray go, Oh, that catcher. He kind of looks a little bit like, he looks a little bit familiar. <laughs> You know,
0: like that never crossed his mind once. Well,
2: he doesn't show up until the end, though. Yeah,
0: I think... not. he's not there day in, day out. I think... No, no. Yeah, Uh, I think, like, originally, like, it was those eight White Sox players and uh, John wasn't part of that. But then when, like, towards the end, when Ray and Terrence get to the field again and he sees, like, that there's enough people to play a game, I think that that's when John becomes one of the players. Um, and obviously, if he hides behind ca- behind catches uh, equipment, then you know it's not as easy to point out that that's his father unless he takes it off like he did. Okay. Well,
1: there is a line Ray does say he's like, "There's only eight of them, so they can't have an actual game." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's later when yeah when um when uh you know when they know, come back I, with options there's more players. Right, and then I, I love um, my favorite character in the film is, you know, R.I.P. Ray Liotta, who we lost, legend among legends. I thought he nailed it as Shoeless Joe Jackson. I thought he was awesome. I liked the part he's like, yeah, you know, Ty Cobb wanted to play, but we couldn't stand the son of a bitch when he was alive, so we told him to stick it. <laughs> Ty Cobb wanted to play. None of us could stand the son of a bitch when we were alive, so we told him to stick it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fantastic law, that one, absolutely. Yeah, well, I'm glad you guys cleared that up for me because that was very, that was distracting me last night. I was thinking, how did you not recognise your old man there the whole time? But turns out I was wrong and the movie stays uh, intact in my eyes. All
0: right, we'll move on and look at any references to history throughout the film. And there are obviously a couple, Um, but I think that we'll first start by saying, and I think, Paul, you sort of, Uh, brought this up a little bit that this movie was actually based on a novel um, called Shoeless Joe Um, it was a novel by the name by author uh, W.P. Kinsella um, William Patrick Kinsella who was a Canadian author and he wrote this story um, sort of first developed the idea while attending the Iowa Writers Workshop and decided to incorporate the stories he told about the Black Sox scandal, imagining if Shoeless Joe Jackson came back to the same city Kinsella was living in, which was Iowa City. Um, Shoeless Joe was obviously later adapted into the 1989 film Field of Dreams. Um, The original working title for Field of Dreams was Shoeless Joe, similar to the name of the book, but the original title of the book was actually Dream Field. Um, but the publisher renamed it Shoeless Joe so I think that it still does come back to obviously that original title of the book um, what the title of this movie came to be Um, but we have a character in Field of Dreams who is Terrence Mann who is the author um, and W.P. Kinsella based Terrence Mann on J.D. Salinger so Terence Mann didn't oh sorry W.P. Kinsella didn't want to properly mention J.D. Salinger in his book or in this movie and so he created a wholly imagined character um, based on the capture in the right author Um, and yeah I think that it was basically he said that You know, I made sure to make him a nice character so that he couldn't sue me, um, which I think says (laughs) a little bit about how, like, you know, J.D. Salinger operated or how, like, he was sort of perceived um, at the time. And, like, I look at that, like, PTA meeting when, you know, the parent, like, is criticising the book. And so I feel like some of uh, J.D. Salinger's books, like, have those themes as well. So I think that, like, there's that sort of connection with that. Yep. The Nazi bitch, she wanted to burn the books. Yeah, well your husband plowed under his corn and built a baseball field. Now, there's an intelligent response.
1: The weirdo. Honey,
0: it's all right, I'll be cool. At least he is not a book burner, you Nazi cow. Take that,
1: you Nazi cow. Um, No, God, like, Nazi cow. That's right. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Nazi <laughs> cow. Um, I actually think Terrence Mann, um, I, I, this is all news to me. This is all very interesting. I didn't know. Well, I mean, I knew about the novel Shoeless Joe and I knew what it was based on. Um, I, I didn't know the J.D. Salinger, even though I see it. I mean, how could you not see it? It kind of reminds me of the Sean Connery film Finding Forrester in which that's a like a very thinly veiled J.D. Salinger, except he happens to live in New York City instead of out in the country somewhere. Mm-hmm. You definitely see the recluse thing in Terrence Mann. There was a J.D. Salinger documentary that came out a few years ago. I highly recommend seeing that. Um, I, I like Terrence Mann's character a lot in that I feel that is what has made this movie hold up over time. The reason I think Major League Baseball has really affixed itself to Field of Dreams among any other baseball movies because of his speech at the end. And he's just like, the one constant has been baseball. And (laughs) reminds you of all that was once good and all that could be good again.
2: People will come, Ray. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has rolled by like an army of steamrollers and erased like a blackboard, rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game, is a part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good, and it could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. He will most definitely come.
1: Um, sorry, I can't get as deep as James Earl Jones, but that is, um, I and mean, we're talking about history, and that's exactly what we should be talking about because baseball is very different from the other American sports in that it is all about nostalgia, it sells nostalgia. If you go back to uh, you know, the 70s and 80s, you had these cookie cutter kind of futuristic ballparks that serve dual purpose with football, gave way to these throwback retro parks that were built in the 90s to go back to the 50s and 30s and 40s. And, you know, that's what he's saying. That's what it's about. That's just what baseball does. And um, I do it myself. Um, I was helping my girlfriend, Kristen, move some stuff the other day and she was cleaning out her garage and in the garage, I see this treasure trove, this treasure trove of 1980s Chicago Cubs. Well, not sort of Chicago Cubs, but like stuff related to Cubs broadcasts and their sponsors and other things. And I thought I'm like, oh my God, this is great. This was when I was a little kid, I could come home from school, and that was the only team on TV. We didn't have cable yet. Um, a lot of people didn't have cable, so I'd watch the Cubs. they had all day games because this was before they were the last team to get lights. This is when they're playing all day games. And now I can't watch the Cubs unless I subscribe to 12 different streaming services and have the right cable package. And that's again, it's, I guess every generation must go through it. We go back to when baseball was just better in our day, younger than it is now. I'll
0: work on a few other uh, references to history. Um, So you obviously had the character of Archibald Moonlight Graham. Um, The people Terrence Mann is interviewing at the bar in the movie are actually people that knew the real Doc Graham. Um, They found out about the movie and the inclusion of Doc Graham's character and they drove out from Chisholm, Minnesota to Iowa to tell these stories and share these stories about Doc Graham to Terrence Mann um, for the benefit of the film um, which I think is really interesting that they would, you know, go that length to do. Um, but Moonlight Graham was a real baseball player, um, as, you know, sort of see it in the movie. He did play one game uh, with the New York Giants on June 29, 1905. Following that one game, he continued playing professionally until the 1908 season, mostly in the New York State League until retiring at the age of 30. So obviously, yeah, the real the character of Moonlight Graham Uh, was real but I think that in the movie they sort they say that his one game or his career sort of finished and ended in 1922 so there was a slight inaccuracy on that part but I think that in terms of like understanding that that was a real character um, you know the film definitely conveyed that and conveyed that he only had one appearance and had no at-bats like it was in the movie too.
2: So I think the question that the people want to know with regards to Moonlight Graham is, uh, did he really carry an umbrella around to beat off uh, potential girlfriends? (laughs) So his wife would get upset.
0: Well, I think that uh, every time that he was like, Oh, I've been out too late. My wife might think that I've got a girlfriend. I think that he would stay faithful and he would ward off uh, any advances from other women. Um, Yeah.
2: What a great character. In the movie, old Moonlight Graham. Fantastic. Yeah. Loved him. He was so good in that movie. Really, really good. Apparently, um, they wanted James Stewart to play Moonlight Graham, but mm-hmm. uh, he passed on it. He said, nah, stupid script, never make any money. Didn't want to do it. So, you know. Yeah. Well, I, like- I, I, hear, I hear that James Stewart, you know, it, it turned out all right for him anyway. Like, you know, didn't wasn't a detriment to his career or anything. Yeah.
1: Bert Lancaster's final film role ever.
0: Really? Yeah, right. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, like, yeah, you mentioned there that, um, you know, he was, uh, or like the other people that were sort of approached to do this movie. Um, I read that James Earl Jones only sort of decided to do the film after his wife read the script and became mesmerised by Terrence Mann's People Will Come speech. Um, and they both joked that they had concerns that scene would be cut from the film and I I read that and I'm like you cannot cut that scene Um, (laughs) (laughs) and then I read a couple of other um, parts where you know about who was approached to play Ray and Annie as well and just like looking at some of those names like they're such like names that um, you know are high up in like the acting spaces but again like you don't think that anyone else could do it justice um apart from the two people that played these characters in- well,
2: it's prime yeah. kevin costner yeah right? yeah this is just prime dances with wolves paul mentioned bull durham before um this is before Waterworld, and you know his career kind of fell off a cliff a little bit um you know at the time, I'm curious, what were some of the other names that were being bandied about?
0: The people that were considered for Annie Kinsella uh, included names such as Jamie Lee Curtis, Gina Davis, Jodie Foster, Demi Moore, Michelle Pfeiffer, Molly Ringwald, Susan Sarandon, Emma Thompson, Sigourney Weaver, um, just to name a few. And Really? For- yeah, and for Ray, you had the name the likes of Alec Baldwin, Jeff Bridges, Tom Cruise, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Tommy Lee Jones, Michael Keaton, Gary Oldman, Patrick Swayze, and Bruce Willis, like Yeah, wow. Fucker, like who's who? Willis. Yeah. There's plenty of names that yeah, were considered, but uh out- um,
2: sorry, out of those names, who would you guys have cast instead of Kevin Costner. Out of the names that Jace Michael just read out, sorry, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton for you. What about you, Jace?
0: I reckon Harrison Ford could have played a good Ray.
2: Okay, these are both great, uh, great picks. I would personally go Jeff Bridges. I think mm-hmm. he would be a yeah, he'd be a good Ray Conseller. So yeah, just curious, just curious where you guys would have picked. And for the wife, for Annie, no one else could play that role. No, You know, there's just, she's got, she's not the most, I don't even know what else she's done in her career, but just in that role, like, she,
1: that's perfect. She was born to play <laughs> that role. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I could understand why there was some resistance to people hearing the script, because if you, you tell someone the plot, <laughs> it sounds like a stoner rant. <laughs> like yeah. Of yeah, man, these 60s hippies, dude, they just moved to Iowa in the 80s and these ghosts <laughs> that come out in the baseball field. The guy hears voices and, and then he sees ghosts. What are these ghosts? Well, he doesn't know what to do, man. They're not telling him. He's got to figure it out.
2: <laughs> hey, put it like that. Yeah. I'm not surprised that they were passed
0: on it i think yeah we'll continue with a couple of the references to history and i think that we'll mention uh yeah we'll mention the fact that when he first meets ray shoeless joe says that it's hard to see the ball because of the lights and ray explains the owners put lights in so that night games could be played and that teams could make more money and shoeless joe replies uh oh, owners um, with a bit of a disgusted sort of dismissive tone what's with the lights oh all
1: the stadiums have them now even wrigley field makes it harder to see the ball yeah well the owners found that more people could attend night games
0: owners the background to this uh story of the 1919 white Sox scandal is that the owner was cheap and didn't pay the players what he'd promised them so as a result you know, that's why, sort of, uh, partly why the players accepted bribes from prominent gamblers to throw the series. And um, yeah, in any reality, it's well documented that the 1919 White Sox players despised the owner, making Shoeless Joe's scoff at owners putting lights on the field a bit more meaningful.
1: Yeah, right. I, I didn't know that. I've read every, I like I said, I'm a huge Black Sox nerd, a huge Black Sox geek. Um, I've followed a lot of it very closely. Um, what I've found is, um, you know, what Jason said is, is spot on. That's true. Um, Charlie Comiskey would make the players launder their own uniforms. Um, some players were paid pretty well. Others will, were not big surprise. The ones that were not paid well through the series. Um, a lot of it has been, there's a lot of like kind of gray area about who was, tanking and who wasn't, um, you know, a lot of we will just never know completely. But the thing about Shoeless Joe Jackson is that he really is considered to be Mount Rushmore baseball player all time, like Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, but he'll never be put in that pantheon because of what happened and what he did or basically... It seems to be the consensus was he he knew about the fix. He was in on meetings, but we don't know if he. And that's addressed in the film very directly. That you know he had a great batting average. He had the only World Series home run. Mm-hmm. It is worth noting though that he, when he drove in runs, it was in garbage time. Game was already settled. You know that's that's you know something else to consider. Um, then it's it's just about where you look at things from a moral perspective. Do you do you think he's uh, a dirty player because he didn't rat out his teammates, um, even if he himself was playing? With him? Or do you believe he was not playing to win? I mean, that's what I do know for sure is that he committed perjury because he has said both in a court of law. So at one point he was saying, "No, I did not do it," and then later when he was suing for back pay in a Milwaukee court in the 1920s. He's, he's saying he. it's confusing, but I, I do know that he said both in court. So at one point he was telling the truth. At one point he wasn't. But beyond that, this is, what, this is my question for you guys. So you've got here I'm wearing this Black Sox jersey that the Sox gave away. Here you have Major League Baseball promoting this Field of Dreams game. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, the White Sox now forever for the longest time they didn't really – lean into this mythology now they are. So it kind of seems hypocritical to me that he remains banned. And obviously he's been dead for a half century. So um but it seems hypocritical to me that he would remain banned for life and he can't get it all.
0: Yeah I think and- holding on to that like scandal um that happened you know over a hundred years ago now um and the fact that you know it said that like Joe wasn't involved in it at all um I think to still like hold that against him um for like all the greatness that he did achieve throughout his career um you know it sounds very wrong um that he was like yeah he basically said that he had no part of it part in it um and was still punished and so I think that yeah I think that you know he obviously no come to understand that story and um through you know research or throughout this movie of what's said and so um yeah I think that you know I think that there was a sort of like insight or like a look back on that commissioner's uh decision to ban them and to suspend them and um I think yeah recently or at least like within the last few decades like there was a sort of an investigation into revisiting that um and the commissioner at the t- at that time, um, basically upheld the decision as well. Um, and so, like, yeah, I think it is really interesting to look back on stuff like that because you consider people to be the greats and um, you want them to be forever remembered and, like, etched into, you know, etch their names into the history books and just, you know, get these accolades, um, such as being in in the Hall of Fame, for instance. And, um, yeah, sometimes, you know, despite what they did, um, you know, they're still probably rightfully uh, should be included in the Hall of Fame.
2: You know, obviously he should be allowed in the Hall of Fame. Um, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So this movie that's kind of built around these Black Sox players um, is now being commercialised and commodified for the MLB to, you know, cash in big time on, you know, uh, nostalgia and and people's fond thoughts of the movie. I mean... Come off it! You just gotta. Whoever's running the show there needs to sort it out. It, that's that's just nonsensical. It's stupid. It, it, it's ridiculous. They need to reverse that decision as soon as possible.
1: Not to mention, um, what what were they banned for life for, and what's going on today? There's a there's a sports book, there's a casino in every ballpark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Partnered with sports gambling, so. Talk about being hypocrites and having your cake and eating it too. Yeah, hey, Tom,
0: good point. Good point. Um, we'll quickly move on as well. Um, and we did reference this a little bit before about uh, Shoeless Joe making a reference to Ty Cobb and his desire to play at the Field of Dreams. Um, and said. none none of us could stand the son of a bitch when he was alive so we told him to stick it and uh, we all sort of had fun at uh, Ray Liotta's laugh in that scene in real life the players were very close friends and so in Jackson's later life uh, this is a story involving the two in Jackson's later life when he ran a liquor store in South Carolina Cobb stopped there to buy bourbon during the sale, Jackson made no sign of recognition to Cobb until Cobb finally said, for God's sake, Joe, don't you remember me? And Jackson somberly replied, well, sure, I remember you, Ty. I just didn't think anyone wanted to remember me anymore. So I think that, yeah, that sort of shows like a bit of like pain for Joe Jackson, um, you know, in that sort of moment and in all that sort of happened. But uh, I think that, yeah, that also comes back to um, him and Ty Cobb and uh the mood towards Ty Cobb from all the other players as well.
2: That's really sad. Read- that's a if that's a true story, that's that that's sad because you know Paul's referencing him as you know part of a potential baseball Mount Rushmore. And uh you know he, he didn't want to interact with with, uh, with you know a former colleague because of his name being you know sullied or whatever due to what happened. That that sucks man. that's that's shitty I've,
1: i've heard about that anecdote in espn 30 for 30 or something and it's interesting we're talking about ty Cobb because apparently like there's been a weird revisionist history with him i mean i guess he wasn't like the nicest greatest human being and he had a lot of flaws but i guess he's been more demonized or more vilified than who he actually was and i i don't know why
0: that We'll quickly move on to a couple more uh, just to finish round out this segment. Uh, Ray Shulk, uh was the catcher for the nineteen nineteen White Sox. He was not involved in the World Series fix, therefore he was not among the returning eight players. But uh, as part of those eight players that did appear, there was a catcher involved because obviously to have a baseball game you do need a catcher. Um, or as you know, as Shoeless Joe said um, when. Ray was pitching to him like you know we won't need a catcher if you get it over the plate um, and I think that that was a little bit of a like yeah a bit of an inaccuracy in terms of a catcher not being involved in the scandal itself but a catcher still showing up uh, through the corn to to this field to play Just uh, you talk about that scene with Joe
2: saying you know, not if you get it over the plate. I love when uh, Ray says see if you can hit my curveball <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you can.
2: He <laughs> puts him on his ass. Very funny. See if
1: you can hit my curve.
0: Oh. Yeah, yeah. You can hit the curveball. Put one right here, huh? Right?
1: hitter. and I
0: did love this game just while we're on that scene as well like Ray Liotta had no baseball experience at all um, prior to this movie and he batted right-handed although Shoeless Joe Jackson was a lefty and so the director of this movie Phil Alden Robinson allowed Liotta to bat with his right um, but still put him through several weeks of extensive training with uh, a baseball coach and former Brooklyn Dodger Rod Dodo, um, in order to be convincing as one of sports greatest hitters, obviously. And Leota throughout all that training actually developed a good swing. And so I think that we saw that um, throughout this movie when we did see Ray Leota batting, but the scene where he hits a line drive straight back at Kevin Costner that actually happened. So like, that wasn't part of the script. That was just like them playing and he just so happened to hit a line drive back to Costner that uh knocked over the bag of baseballs next to Costa um Costner and so that was essentially just sheer luck um and i think that that was like uh, that's one of the scenes that you remember as well um and so i think that yeah i think that the ability to like for like this movie to like sort of have scenes uh that appeared to be just luck you know like one shot scenes or scenes where like they needed to properly finish filming within a certain time like I kept on having uh, a few looks at different instances of uh, you know I think especially the scene like at the end um, where Ray and his father are having a catch like I'm pretty sure that was all like one scene like they only had like such a short time to get it right and um Kevin Costner was like really concerned about dropping the ball and making it feel like you know the magic of that scene was lost um and so like i think that there were a couple of scenes where like yeah they really needed to like work with the light um and like that scene was one of them and then obviously the, the pan up to where you see all the cars coming uh to the field as well like you know like that needed to be done in an instant it was like you know that can't couldn't have waited another day like you know to orchestrate that sort of stuff um, in the first place with all those cars but uh yeah it was amazing that they sort of had uh such little time to work with a few things but um all those things sort of became memorable as well it's one of my favorite things in, in
2: any movie is uh when you hear a little story afterwards like oh they just left that in that wasn't meant to happen but they left that in mm-hmm. yeah. i love uh, i love
0: hearing about those ones they're great so just to finish on that point um leota actually had people point out the inaccuracy to him um and his response to that was none of the players ever came back to life either <laughs> <laughs> fantastic <laughs> they
1: will in field of dreams too, the zombie apocalypse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly get around a paul it's gonna be big
0: <laughs> i mean we referenced that final scene as well um and I think that, yeah, we'll just touch on it. Um, so the final shot of the film was a big community event enlisting 1500 volunteers to drive their vehicles uh, for only a brief time. So, yeah, could both the headlights and the blue of the sky be shown in one shot? Uh, the first take was too bright. On the second shot, the lighting was perfect, but the camera F-stop was messed up. And so just before the final shot, Phil Aiden Robinson realized that as with any heavy traffic, most of the cars weren't moving uh, and so they would just look like lights on posts. He relayed a quick instruction through the local radio station: flash your high beams on and off. So though the cars weren't moving, this simulated the appearance of uh, the appearances of lights passing behind obstructions to perfect effect.
1: Clever,
2: man! Mm. Yeah,
1: I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> yeah, and that is that's one thing about going to Dyersville. I've been to the movie site. It is difficult to get to, and I would imagine that. The way the roads are, the logistics of having baseball games there, how that's what would you had. You'd have a gridlock. You'd have a parking lot like that. Mm-hmm. Really clever of them, though, to come up with a way to to, to uh, show motion, to give that the, the appearance of motion.
0: Uh, we'll move on now and looking at... We've looked at, like, the references to history throughout this movie, but we'll look at the way that this movie has sort of... Uh, implemented itself into real life and so Paul you mentioned it a little while ago that the MLB have now created the Field of Dreams game Um, it's a regular season game played uh, basically at the Field of Dreams site in Dyersville in Iowa Um, obviously not played on the field that was built for this movie but they did construct a 8,000 seat stadium um, just you know, a little uh, while down the track, um, still on the farm itself, but uh, sort of just behind the corn. Um, And the first edition of this game was played on August 12, 21, with the Chicago White Sox and the New York Yankees. And the White Sox won 9-8. to Uh, That was based off of a uh, Tim Anderson walk-off home run, a two-run walk-off home run, um, after the Yankees came back and took the lead in the top of the ninth from home runs. With home runs from aaron judge and john carlos stanton um so i think that yeah i think that it's important to sort of look at the effect of this movie um on real life and still like you know 30 years or uh, 20 years down the track as well um and now we get a mlb at field of dreams game and uh obviously this game is happening again uh it's scheduled for august 11 um so basically next week um and that one will be between the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago Cubs but yeah I think that it's really important to sort of look back on like the influence that this movie has on real life and uh influence that you know MLB could sort of like I guess like yeah you sort of uh, alluded to it as well like take sort of take advantage of um because they know that like this will create a big spectacle uh essentially and so I think that uh yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I I love the spectacle of last year's. Um, I think that in part, like, you know, you had an Aussie appear in it um, as well. Like, Liam Hendricks pitched for the White Sox in that top of the ninth and, you know, essentially gave up, like, a save opportunity but was still credited with the save in the end. So um, it's good to, have, like, have that bit of history, like, on Australian sides. Um, and I think, like, it also comes back to history in a way because, Anderson's home run was the White Sox's 15th walk-off home run against the Yankees in team history with shoeless Joe Jackson hitting the very first. Um, so I think that that like really ties it well or ties it back really well to the rivalry between the White Sox and the Yankees. And then this movie and just like, yeah, the legacy of shoeless Joe.
1: And now we've got the Reds who benefited from the White Sox tanking the 1990 World Series playing against the Cubs, who indirectly led to the um, uncovering of the fix. There, um, there was a Cubs-Phillies game that there was being tampered, and that's how it all started. There was a Cubs game that somebody said wasn't on the level, and that led to some people snooping around, and then they uncovered the 1919 World Series fix from that. So there's connections to it all around.
2: That's fascinating, that uh, Shilster-Jackson um, stat that you brought up before, Jason. That's incredible. How yeah, I didn't know that. That's all up it. in a neat little package, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and like I think that the reception to last year's Field of Dreams game was pretty positive, positive. Um, and it became the most watched regular season MLB game since 2005, um, and so I think that Yeah, there were a couple of commentators that said, you know, they weren't sure if the MLB could have done an event better than the Field of Dreams game. Um, You know, obviously, it was such a uh, great game with the White Sox with the walk-off win and just like that sort of like, yeah, the progression of how the game went. Um, But I think that uh, such a large part of it was, you know, the fact that they built a stadium purely for this and you know like it might only be used once a year for MLB uh, fixtures but I'm pretty sure that um, uh, like you know a local team plays there or at least like a local team played on the field at the farm and so like I assume that a local team would travel here and you know play games on the field Um, so it's not just like a built for a one-off game Um, once a year and so I think that yeah what it really is and like you know we talked about the spectacle is like just everything that came with it like the scenery the park itself um, the people involved the vibe that was around like it just seems like a perfect sort of nod to the movie itself Um, and I don't think that you're going to forget the scenes of like all those players from the Yankees and the White Sox. And then obviously you had Kevin Costner there as well, like emerge from the corn towards this stadium, towards the field. And so like, you know, reminiscent and reflective of the movie itself. Um, And like, yeah, Stuart, um, you know, Paul, you mentioned that, you know, they really sort of like lapped it up, I guess, um, you know, in terms of Kevin Costner's walkout and like how much uh, he wanted to be on the screen um and just like yeah the speeches that they he gave like whether at the game or like in the promo stuff beforehand but I think that yeah they really like built it up hyped it up and I mean it came across as a really good product um I'll I'll, I believe that um I hope that this, this year's one has the same effect as well um I'm sure that it will obviously involving two different clubs um and so like Two different teams can experience this. Two different sets of fans can experience this, and then the people of Iowa, like you know, there's no major league team in that uh, region. And so, like for them to get this sort of game once a year, I think that the fans will still flock to this stadium. And so, I think that yeah, I think that this Field of Dreams game is like really important in terms of like the structure of how it was created Um, you know they wanted it in 2020 originally but to get it up and running last year uh, was a really important step Um, and yeah I think that this will become a regular fixture going forward and yeah I'm excited to see how they uh, continue that and obviously last year's with the hype I just wonder like how they're gonna sort of continue that hype um, throughout the years as well.
1: Yeah my one complaint would be that they need to stick to a theme when they're there like they had the old timey scoreboard and a lot of old timey imagery, but then they've got like modern music and like the mixing of errors and
0: stuff. Just in ex- continuing this, uh, looking at the actual site of Field of Dreams and the farm itself, uh, Don Lansing, the owner of the property that was chosen, uh, agreed to let the production reconfigure his house and open it up inside to accommodate cameras and equipment. He was paid $12,000 for his consent and as part of that an air conditioning system was installed a porch was built the floors were leveled and so I think that and obviously like nowadays as well you can obviously attend this site Um, it's become like this big attraction and Paul you said that you went uh, about 20 years ago as well and so I'm sure that's changed since then as well but I think that you know the fact that you can go to this site you can see the house you can play on the field you can even like stay inside the house as well. Um, I think that, yeah, obviously, it just, um, you know, can circles back to like creating all that hype and like all that marketing from the movie, um and like, you know, taking advantage of seeing people that want to come here and spend their time and just like take it all in. Um, but yeah, like, I'm sure that even when you visited 20 years ago, Paul, like it's changed a lot since then as well. And obviously we have the MLB at Field of Dreams game, but I think that, yeah, what were your like experiences of going there and what did you sort of like, uh, you know, do while you were there? Did you play a game? No, I I did play catch with my dad. Um, I I went there with my
1: parents um, 20 years ago and I, um, I don't remember the house being open at the time maybe it was but i didn't go inside i just went to the field and um but i do remember it was a big tourist attraction
0: just before we move on to looking at the acting performances and dissecting the cast we'll ask you each because we have talked about the 1919 white socks and how they effectively come back to life um in a way throughout this movie and, uh, you know, fulfill their dreams of continuing to play baseball on the field that Ray has built uh, specifically or, you know, intendedly for them. Um, So I want to pose a question to you both. If there was a baseball player, either dead or alive, current or former that you would want to have a throw with or have a bat with. uh, Yeah. Who would it be? And, why have you picked that person? I'd go with Eddie
1: Seacott. Um, he has a more prominent role in Eight Men Out, and you see just how crucial he was to the fix of the 1919 World series. In Field of Dreams, he's just kind of a cameo character, but um, you know, he was the starting pitcher, the, age of, the ace of the staff, the guy who had to provide the signal that the fix was on, and he was really the key. There would not have been a fix if he would not have gone along with it. So he would be the one I'd, I'd want to talk to the most. As is my way, Jace.
2: I've kind of veered from the props slightly. Uh, and I'm going to pick a fictional baseball character. And I'm going to pick Ricky the Wild Thing Vaughn because uh, I feel like if I could hit a home run off of uh, the Wild Thing, then, you know, I could probably do it facing any pitcher so there we go that's my pick
0: okay no I can agree with that I can uh appreciate that pick uh mine is a current player um plays for the Angels at the moment and that's Shohei Ohtani. um I just think that uh yeah he's one of the, like the best players at the moment and part of the reason why is because he is a two-way player so he's prominent pitching prominent in batting and so I think that um you know I feel like with him, like, you know, you can get the full experience of both, you know, seeing his batting on display, seeing his pitching on display. And so I think that if you had like a, you know, sort of one-on-one with him, um, you know, it could be very enjoyable um, compared to someone who specialises in just one of those things.
2: Fantastic picks all round, I think. Let's make it happen.
0: All right, we'll move on now and look at the cast from this movie and so I'll run you through the main cast list we had Kevin Costner as Ray Kinsella Amy Madigan as Annie Kinsella Gabby Hoffman as Karen Kinsella James Earl Jones as Terrence Mann Ray Liotta as Sheila Strode Jackson and Timothy Busfield as Mark um, who was Annie's brother um, so looking at this cast list and obviously you can reference any other actor and character that appeared What did you make of the cast as a whole? And if there was anyone's performance that you wanted to single out uh, and talk about as well, uh, go for it. Was there anyone that sort of stood out for you guys?
2: Honestly, this cast is nearly perfection. I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier with, uh, uh, you know, potential different Rays and Annies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they nailed it, top to bottom. Uh, I can't think of any improvements. James L. Jones, Brilliant. In that Terence Mann role, uh, I thought he was fantastic. Kevin Costner was fantastic. Um, Amy Madigan—that's her name, right? Yep, brilliant. Born to play this role. Um, you know, even the asshole brother-in-law. Uh, I, I, the actor's name escapes me, but uh, you know, he he nails that role too. Like everything is just—it's perfect. Uh, Paul touched on Ray Liotta earlier. Um, how brilliant he is in this movie. Um, yeah. I can't think of uh, a bad thing to say about any of them. I can't even, they're all so good and so perfect for the role. I can't even think of one to single out over, over any others.
1: Yeah, I just reiterate what I said before about um, James Earl as Terrence Madd and Ray Liotta, Shula Jack Jackson. I think they kind of stole the show for me.
0: Yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't think you could have anyone else playing any of these characters. I know that, yeah, we gave went through that. List before about people who were considered, but I think that we all sort of came to a um, conclusion that, you know, no one could replace Kevin Costner as Ray. No one could replace Amy Madigan as Annie, um, especially not, you know, James L. Jones and Ray Liotta as Terrence Mann and Sheila Stray Jackson, respectively. I think that, um yeah, I think that with James L. Jones, like, you know, you, could, you really got that sense of him being like a former author who is just like you know feeling you know i don't know hard done by by the world and like you sort of get that with his first meeting with ray and um i think that his ability to properly like uh convey like that sort of aggressiveness towards ray for like the constant persistent um you know arguing or like wanting something and then you know just like to see um to see like that at the start and then like you know he had these moments where he was like Happy, he was like enthusiastic. But then like there are other times where he did go back to that as well. Um, I think that was a real like, you know, reflective of who or how big of an actor that James L. Jones can be. Um, and like a little bit of a fun fact here about James L. Jones is that he doesn't actually like baseball in real life. Um, and so really? think, yeah. And so for him wow. to wow deliver that final speech about like you know the the really influence of baseball people will come to this field to watch baseball like you know i don't know if he like cringed while uh reciting that or not but uh you know even despite that like he'd play another baseball enthusiast four years later in the sandlot kids as well so i think that yeah maybe deep down he does enjoy baseball <laughs> <laughs> this is brilliant acting if he doesn't like baseball yeah um But yeah, I think that, yeah, like I said, like you just can't replace any people or it seems like you can't replace any people on this cast list. Um, I think that even, you know, even if you don't know much about, say, Joe Jackson um, and like his time in the MLB and just like how he was as a person, like I feel like Ray Liotta um, encapsulates that beautifully. Like it makes me properly... Uh, think that like this is how Joe like properly sort of uh, conveyed himself as who he was as a person Um, just like in terms of yeah just like his laughs his jokes um, just like his mannerisms um, and just the way that he sort of goes about things and talks Um, and so yeah I think that you just can't replace anyone on this cast they all do a perfect job blending together and uh, creating field of dreams helping create this movie.
2: Uh, yeah, couldn't agree more, mate. Fascinated by, uh, by uh, yeah, by James Earl Jones not liking baseball. That's incredible. Yeah.
1: Just how ironic, unbelievable.
0: Um, another fascinating infight, insight is that the identity of the actor who provided the voice who speaks to Ray throughout the film has remained unconfirmed since the film's release. Uh, in the end credits, it says the voice as himself, and uh, you know there's been <laughs> a bit of speculation about who it might have been. Um, some believe it was Costner, some believe that it was Re- Leota, some believe that it was Ed Harris, who was uh, Amy Madigan's husband, because that's what uh, W.P. Kinsella uh, was told, or who uh, W.P. Kinsella was told it was that provided the voice, but again, it's a mystery, no one knows.
2: What a, uh, what a fun little thing, that no one knows, uh, yeah. Who,
0: who did the voice that's crazy just imagine uh, like the person like walking around and being like i was the voice in field of dreams and people will be like
2: yeah sure yeah exactly <laughs> all
0: right we'll now move on and look at if there was any relatable character in the film that you guys saw whether it was the character overall or maybe it was a particular aspect or characteristic of a certain character or maybe it was just a line that the character said throughout the movie that you saw yourself being like, yep, I agree. Or like, that's something that I would say. Was there anyone like that in this movie for you guys?
2: I feel like I've had moments where I'm uh, angry Terrence, man. Um, my buddies are harassing me and I just want them to go away, but they don't get the picture. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I've I've had those feels before. So that's my
1: pick, mate. What do you got, Paul? Yeah, that's a tough one. I would... Um... I don't know. I Sometimes I, I do kind of feel like Ray, where I wonder about um, have I done anything spontaneous enough or not? And wrestling with that about, you know, what's it all about? And why not do something off the wall? I think I could relate to that.
0: Not the hearing voices part.
1: <laughs> well, we'll see. I mean, maybe that'll <laughs> the
0: Yeah, I think for me, in a way, like maybe Annie, just in the sense of, uh, you know, someone coming to me with an idea that's so outrageous and me, half being like that's ridiculous and then half being like you know what just do it I'll I'll support you (laughs) um no matter how crazy it is um like just go along with it I'll let you um and so that um I think yeah I reckon Annie um but yeah I've definitely been in the situation of Terrence Mann um in terms of just like wanting to be left alone and wanting people who are persistent um and come at me with fake guns to just no, get out of my life. You're <laughs> <Do it> from <laughs> but, the '60s. Go back. Go back. I, I wouldn't mind if uh, someone took. <laughs> me to base, I wouldn't mind if someone took me to a baseball game for free or anything. <laughs> He's love Joe. All right, and just in closing, now we come to our final prompt, our final segment, and it explores the question: If you could have a baseball movie get made, what would it be, and why? So, wow. have either of you thought of an idea for this? And if so, what have you got?
1: Cubs 2016 World Series.
0: It's time.
1: Mm -hmm. I have
2: not given this any thought, Jace. I'm sorry. Um, Let's go. Way to prepare, Stewie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a constant. Let's just go go with...
2: uh, Let's just go with... uh, I've got nothing. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, yeah, let me me fix up a previous one that uh, Paul brought to our attention. There is actually already a Major League 3. And apparently it's nonsense. It's one of those, uh, you know, off-brand uh, sequels. So let's do a proper Major League Four sequel. Let's bring everyone who's alive back um, in whatever state they're in. And uh, let's, let's see a story of, uh, you know, let's have a bit of life imitating art or art imitating life with, uh, you know, Ricky the Wild Thing Born uh, mirroring Charlie Sheen's uh, just craziness and uh, trying to get him back on track for one last uh, go around the diamond. How about that? Major League Four. Love it.
0: My idea, uh, I always like to bring a bit of an Australian flavour to this. And so my idea is Genevieve Beacom. Uh, She is a 17-year-old pitcher um, who plays in Australia and for Australia uh, in junior teams. And... She became the first female pitcher to play for a professional baseball team earlier this year when she made her debut for the Melbourne Aces, um, who is an Australian Baseball League team um, when they competed in the Melbourne Challenge against the Adelaide Giants earlier this year. She was subbed into the game in the final inning. She gave up no hits and no runs, um, and the Aces lost the game. But I think that uh, just the story of her making that appearance, creating history in that way, um, I think that you know, is an important story to document. I know that there's been a movie and like one that I can think of at the moment called Pitch, um, which is, a, I think, about like the first female to make it to the major league. I feel like this could be similar to that, um, just, but just give it a bit of an Australian flavour. Um, and maybe if you want to turn it into a documentary just to change it up from that uh, aforementioned movie that could be a good idea
2: I love how you bring in an Australian twist to it with almost without fail every week and uh, I think it's fantastic
0: that does now bring us to the end of the episode so Stewie Paul would you like to share your social media handles with anyone and uh, maybe uh, where anyone else can find you
1: yeah just check out uh, the sportsbank.net um you can find me on twitter at paul m banks on instagram at paul m banks although that one's private so probably better off finding me at at sports bank official on instagram that is the instagram account for the site and of course my cat's account at Otis ginger time
2: you can hear me on after extra time i even uh even pop in for a uh, bit of a guest spot on ascending olympus uh, this week, um, Commonwealth Games, Australia dominating, fantastic, beating the Kiwis all the time. It's what we love. Um, you can find me on socials at Stewie the Sports Guy on Instagram and TikTok, and at Stewie is sick of it. Almost forgot my own handle. Then how weird? At Stewie is sick of it on Twitter as well.
0: Your cat doesn't have its own Instagram.
2: Not yet. In construction. <laughs>
0: And you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Jace Irves. You've been listening to Goals on Film. You can find Goals on Film on Twitter and Instagram at Goals on Film Pod. Goals on Film is part of the Edge of the Crowd Network. You can find Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, and YouTube at Edge of the Crowd. You can also view any of our stories, be it sport or culture, bit of politics at our website, www.edgeofthecrowd.com. And of course, it is the Commonwealth Games at the moment. So we will be doing daily recaps of the top nine moments and also keep tuned to our dedicated podcast ascending olympus you can find them on twitter and instagram at ascending ollie pod until next week thanks for tuning in